Welcome to this podcast where we will be studying Doctrine and Covenants sections 20 through 22 in correlation with the churches. Come follow me. I am David J. Ridges. I'm the author of the Doctrine and Covenants Made Easier. The full title is Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants Made Easier. In other words, it's made easier, not necessarily easy. You have to do your part in studying it also. It might be helpful if you have your own scriptures close by as we study sections 20 to 22. It's interesting to note that section 20 is often referred to as the first handbook of instructions for the church. It's easy to see why. In fact, let's look at several verses where it uh, gives instructions as to how to run the church, how to do things in the church. All of this is new for these folks who were close by. All of this was very new to the new members of the church and the people who were just investigating it back in 1830. For instance, by way of handbook of instructions type materials, if you want to turn to verse 37, there you'll find how to qualify for baptism. That's a very important part of this, so to speak, first handbook of instructions. Uh, in verse 37, it says, All those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the church that they have truly repented of all their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end and truly manifest by their works that they have received the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins, shall be received by baptism into his church. By the way, did you notice a really interesting doctrine about uh, the Spirit of Christ? How the Spirit of Christ prepares people to investigate the gospel and study the gospel, and then the Holy Ghost will take over and give them a strong witness of it, and after they're baptized and confirmed, they will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost to keep their education going in the things of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another example of handbook of instructions things in section 20, um, if you'll just notice that verses 38 all the way to 69 have instructions about the specific duties of elders, priests, teachers, deacons, and members even. And this includes verse 65 that instructs that no setting apart or ordinations be done without first being sustained by the members of the church. By the way, that's a very important verse if you uh, want to mark it, that's verse 65, and maybe out to the side you put a little note saying no secret ordinations. If you have had any occasion to study or be acquainted with 
break-off groups from the church, you find very often that they claim to have been secretly ordained by visitors from beyond the veil to take over the leadership of the church. And uh, section 20, verse 65 says that cannot be. There are no secret ordinations. Anytime someone is called to an office in the church, they are presented for the members of the church of that ward or stake or the whole church or whatever unit it is for their sustaining. In other words, for them to raise their hands in sustaining. There are no secret ordinations. Let's look at verse 70. You might just make a note there with verse 70. It has the instructions for blessing babies. Moving on to verses 73 to 74, we have instructions on how to baptize and the exact words of the baptismal prayer. When I was on my mission as a young elder to Austria, uh, I had the opportunity to baptize a wonderful uh, man who had uh, listened to the gospel as we taught it to him, and the Holy Ghost gave him a testimony of it, and I was to have the privilege of baptizing him. And as a fairly new missionary, I was quite nervous about getting it exactly right, but I memorized the wrong baptismal prayer. I memorized the one in uh, the Book of Mormon. And so uh, when I got to that part of the baptismal prayer from the Book of Mormon, it isn't exactly what it is here in the Doctrine and Covenants. I can still remember the other missionaries, a couple of them leaning over and saying, Bruder Ridges, that's not richtig. In other words, Brother Ridges, that's not right. And boy, I was so uh, totally befuddled that they had to just uh, give it to me almost word for word. Uh, and then I got it right and got Brother Bimberger baptized and all was well. But the People sometimes wonder why the Book of Mormon baptismal prayer is a little different than the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, because the Lord's gave it to us this way, and we use the exact words in verses 73 to 74. Now, going on to verse 75, uh, you have instructions to, pair, to partake of the sacrament often. That's really important. Uh, one time when, while I was serving as a state president, I had visited a ward in my state for a sacrament meeting. And after the meeting was over, I uh, gradually came down off the stand and a lady grabbed me and pulled me into the center section where nobody could interrupt us and was rather frustrated and irritated. And she said, President Ridges, uh, this was very disappointing, this sacrament meeting. People were so noisy during the sacrament. It seemed like a lot other th lot going on. And uh, we really ought not to take the sacrament so often because people are getting where they take it for granted. Well, I was really glad that I had studied some in the Doctrine and Covenants, and I was able to simply 
tell her and gently show her in section 20, verse 75, where the Lord himself instructs us to partake of the sacrament often. And she looked at that and said, oh. And so I said, we probably, I personally need to take it every week if possible. And sometimes that's not often enough for me. I need a lot of help in repenting and moving ahead. And I was aware that if we properly take the sacrament, that it's the same as being rebaptized. I explained that to her a bit, and she went away somewhat satisfied that we really ought to take it often. Well, let's look at verse 77. There are the exact instructions for the sacrament prayer on the bread. Then we go to verse 79, another part of this, so to speak, handbook of instructions. Uh, we have the blessing on the water, but as you read it, you notice it says wine. So what do you do with that? Well, the simple answer to that is let's turn to section 27, verse 2, and we'll read it. That's going to be section 27, verse 2. Section 27, verse 2. We read, For behold, I say unto you, that it mattereth not what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, when ye partake of the sacrament. If it so be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory, remembering unto the Father my body which was laid down for you, and my blood which was shed for the remission of your sins. So, section 27, verse 2 is the authorization to use water in place of wine. And in our sacrament prayers today, as you know, we use the word water. Let's keep going and see how this is a handbook of instructions, so to speak. In verse 80, we have instructions for dealing with members involved in serious transgression. In verse 82, we have instructions to have membership records kept in the church, and all of us have our names on these membership records. These are very important records and will be involved with our judgment on Judgment Day even. Verse 83 uh, gives instructions regarding excommunication. And in cases of excommunication, verse 83 instructs that the name of the person excommunicated is to be taken off the records of the church. That's a very serious matter. Verse 84 uh, gives instructions regarding members who are moving from one area where the church is located to another area in where there may be a branch of the church in they are instructed to take a certificate that is signed by someone in authority in the place they're leaving from, and uh, they can show the leaders of the church in whatever area they're moving to this certificate that certifies that they're in good standing with the church. In our time now, 
our temple recommends serves the same purpose. I've had occasions where I've gone um, out of town to participate in baptism or ordinations of our family members. And the standard practice is for the bishop or presiding authority to ask me to show my temple recommend. So verse 84, that's the beginning of this practice, a very important thing to keep the ordinance work in the church and everything else uh, in good standing with God. So, as you can well see, Section 20 is indeed a handbook of instructions, by the way. It's sometimes referred to as the Articles and Covenants. If you happen to read in the introductory um, paragraph to Section 20 in your scriptures, if you have a set of scriptures, a Doctrine and Covenants, that was published by the Church, uh, in 2013 or later, you will find that it says the complete revelation known at the time as the Articles and Covenants was likely recorded soon after April 6, 1830, the day the church was organized. If you have a set of scriptures that was printed before 2013, uh, you wouldn't find that little sentence in the heading. You can always get online, get an electronic copy of it and just compare the headings if you have a older sex, uh, set of Doctrine and Covenants and uh, compare the new headings with the old ones. The new headings have been deeply influenced and wonderfully influenced and updated by the research on the Joseph Smith papers. Also, Section 20 is sometimes called the Constitution of the Church. Now, let's go back and look at a few specifics in Section 20. Uh, let's go right back to verse 1. You'll notice that verse 1 is very specific regarding the year, month, and day to organize the church. Let's read it now. Section 20, verse 1. The rise of the Church of Christ in these last days, being 1,830 years since the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh, it being regularly organized, and established agreeable to the laws of our country by the will and commandments of God in the fourth month and on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. That's very, very specific. We're going to quote something that Joseph Smith wrote regarding uh, this the exact day on which the church was to be organized, quote from Joseph Smith. In this manner did the Lord continue to give us instructions from time to time concerning the duties which now devolved upon us, and among many other things of the kind, we obtained of him the following, which would refer to section 20, the revelation that we now call section 20 by the spirit of prophecy and revelation, 
which not only gave us much information, but also pointed out to us the precise day upon which, according to his will and commandment, we should proceed to organize his church once more here upon the earth. By the way, that comes from History of the Church, Volume 1, page 64. There's a few other quotes that, regarding the exact day, President Harold B. Lee, the president of the church several years ago, said this about April 6th. April 6th is a particularly significant date because it commemorates not only the anniversary of the organization of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in this dispensation, but also the anniversary of the birth of the Savior, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. By the way, that was from the conference report, the general conference report, April of 1973. Or you could find it in the end sign, April 1973. Also, a quote from President Kimball about this exact date, April 6, 1830. President Kimball said, quote, the name Jesus Christ and what it represents has been plowed deep into the history of the world, never to be uprooted. Christ was born on the 6th of April. Being one of the sons of God and his only begotten, his birth is of supreme importance. That was from the conference report of April of 1975, or the May 1975 ensign. Both of these prophets said that Christ was born on April 6th. And so the church was organized on the Savior's birthday, as we understand it. Now, a question. What took place at the organization of the church? How did the organization of the church come about on April 6, 1830? Well, we'll read a little quote here from the um, Institute of Religion manual titled The Church History in the Fullness of Times. This will be just a brief uh, statement of what uh, took place on the day of the organization of the church. Quote, the meeting was simple. Joseph Smith, then 24 years old, called the group to order. By the way, this took place in the home of Peter Whitmer Sr. in Fayette, New York. Joseph Smith, then 24 years old, called the group to order and designated five associates, Oliver Cowdery, Hiram Smith, Peter Whitmer Jr., Samuel H. Smith, and David Whitmer to join him to meet New York's legal requirements for incorporating a religious society. After kneeling in solemn prayer, Joseph asked those present if they were willing to accept him and Oliver as their teachers and spiritual advisors. Everyone raised their hands in the affirmative. 
Although they had previously received the Melchizedek priesthood, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery then ordained each other to the office of elder. They did this to signify that they were elders in the newly organized church. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was administered next. The prayers used had been received through revelation. And we already read those, by the way, in Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verses 75 and 79. Joseph and Oliver then confirmed those who had previously been baptized as members of the Church of Jesus Christ and bestowed upon them the gift of the Holy Ghost. Close quote. That was a most significant event in the history of the world, April 6, 1830, when the true Church of Jesus Christ was restored, and we are privileged to be members of it. Now, let's look at just a few major messages and important things. There's so much in sections 20 to 22 to study, and we're limited, of course, by time. So let's look at a few major messages. Let's go to verse 7 in section 20. I love what it says here. It says, And gave unto him commandments which inspired him. Have you ever thought that commandments can inspire us? They can indeed. This reminds me of a verse in section 59. In fact, if you would care to turn to section 59 with me, we will go to verse 4 and see what the Lord says about commandments. Let's see, where is section 59? It was there last time I looked. All right, section 59. Verse 4, And they shall also be crowned with blessings from above, yea, and with commandments not a few. I love that in my own scriptures, section 59, verse 4. I underlined or highlighted, crowned with, and then I under colored in, Commandments not a few. So I've got a little sentence within verse 4 that jumps out at me. Crowned with commandments not a few. I love that way to look at commandments. They are great blessings. They can inspire us. And we, as we live the gospel, we are crowned with commandments not a few. And several years ago, I was teaching an adult religion class and uh, one of my counselors, who was a convert to the church, uh, was attending the class. And when we got to section 59, we were studying the Doctrine and Covenants in that class that year. When we got to section 59, verse 4, and it, we quoted it in class, read it, and they shall also be crowned with blessings from above, yea, and with commandments not a few. I remember looking at him, and his reaction was marvelous, was wonderful. He was startled as it occurred to him, as the light went on, so to speak, 
that commandments are great blessings and we are crowned with commandments if we are faithful in the church. I'll never forget the look on his face. And he looked up, his head went back and he looked right at me and in a way said, wow, I had never thought of it that way. Commandments, not a few, are inspiration to us. They're the handbook of instructions for us as to how to live our lives. Uh, let's go to verse 11 in section 20 and look at another sweet message. Verse 11 uh, is talking about the Book of Mormon. And in verse 11, it says, using the Book of Mormon from the previous verses, the Book of Mormon, proving to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true. I love that. It reminds us that the Book of Mormon proves that the Bible is true. Have you noticed that fewer and fewer people nowadays, uh, uh, not of our church, of course, but out in the world, fewer and fewer people even refer to the Bible anymore. They don't believe it. They believe it might be good literature, but they're getting farther and farther away from the fact that the Bible comes to us from God. And so here in the Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verse 11, the Book of Mormon is a major uh, player in proving to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true. In other words, the Holy Scriptures are the Bible. That's all they had yet in the days of Joseph Smith, except, of course, the Book of Mormon, which had been uh, published now. Let's go to verses 13 and 14, still in section 20, uh, where... Uh, we will find a wonderful message to us. Let's read them. Section 20, verse 13 and 14. Therefore, having so great witness, witnesses, by them shall the world be judged, even as many as shall hereafter come to a knowledge of this work. And those who receive it in faith and work righteousness shall receive a crown of eternal life. First of all, let's look at eternal life. What does that mean? It always means exaltation. Whenever you see it in the scriptures, eternal life is a synonym for exaltation. They both mean exaltation and becoming gods, living in the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom. Now let's go back in verse 13, and if you're underlining or marking scriptures, we might go to the last three lines of verse 13 and mark, even as many as shall hereafter come to a knowledge of this work. What is this work? You might put a little note in there. Yeah, this work is the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the power of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, even as many as shall hereafter come to a knowledge of this work, that's verse 13, and it continues in verse 14, 
and work righteousness. In other words, verse 14, those who receive it in faith and work righteousness shall receive a crown of eternal life. In other words, we'll have receive exaltation. That's a promise to you and me as we do our best to stay on the covenant path and stay faithful in this marvelous true church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now another uh, very important message here in section 20. Uh, the question is, was Christ actually tempted or was he so far advanced that he was far beyond temptation? Well, the answer is found right in verse 22. This is clear, exact. Was Christ tempted? Answer, yes. Verse 22. He suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. So he actually was tempted, but he did not yield to them. There's a message for us there. As you well know, and I well know, we are very often tempted. We will be tempted also, as Christ was tempted, not that severely, but we are tempted. But what did Christ do? He gave no heed unto them. So what's our job, so to speak? The job is don't yield to them. Some people are very embarrassed and frustrated that they're still tempted by certain things. They would like to uh, long since have overcome, even being affected by them, even being tempted at all. Now, there are a lot of things that we can get to the point where they no longer even uh, push us at all. We're not tempted by them, but there are many things that still tempt us, and some quite seriously so. So what's the message in verse 22? If we follow the Savior as our great exemplar, then we give no heed to them, whatever that takes. And by the way, if we follow President Nelson's instructions given many times since he became our prophet, we need to, we have the blessing and privilege of repenting daily and looking upon repentance not as something we have to do as kind of a negative in our lives but looking upon the privilege of repenting with joy and even exhilaration now another little detail here perhaps but really quite a significant one if you look in section 20 verse 24 uh, you'll see the right hand, and Christ ascended into heaven to sit down on the right hand of the Father. Well, what is the symbolism of right hand as used in the scriptures and as used here in verse 24? The answer is, it's the covenant hand. And the fact that Christ sat down on the right hand of the Father, right hand in this setting and context symbolizes that Christ kept his covenants. And so when you see right hand in the scriptures, remember, it's another way of saying 
uh, if someone gets to sit down at the right hand of God, that that person kept his or her covenants. And by the way, as you well know, there is a lot of help from the Savior and from the atonement and from the Holy Ghost in keeping covenants and doing it better and better, or effectively, more consistently throughout life. So to sit down at the right hand of the Father is a statement that you have kept your covenants. And with the help of Christ and his atonement, those covenants are all valid now in your final uh, state on Judgment Day. And don't wait clear till then. You can have that same assurance from the Holy Ghost as you strive to keep covenants. You can have that same encouragement and uh, feeling that even now, right now in mortality, you are in effect living on the right hand of the Father. And it brings a lot of joy. It's not arrogance. It's not presumptuous. It is fact that we can have his endorsement and the Holy Ghost's assurance that we're on the covenant path and moving in the right direction. And if we were to die right now, we would continue on that covenant path in the next life on into exaltation. Well, we've got to uh, get ready to close here. Uh, question. Was the gift of the Holy Ghost available before Christ came to earth and fulfilled his mission, including his atoning sacrifice for us? Was the gift of the Holy Ghost available before Christ came? In other words, clear back from the beginning. Well, let's look at verses 25 and 26. The answer, by the way, is yes. Let's read it. Verse 25, section 20. That as many as would believe and be baptized in his holy name and endure in faith to the end would should be saved. Now watch verse 26. Not only those who believed after he came in the meridian of time, meaning back when Christ was born and grew up and served his mission, after he came in the meridian of time, in the flesh, but all those from the beginning, even as many as were before he came, who believed in the words of the holy prophets, who spake as they were inspired by the gift of the Holy Ghost. You might even mark or underline or whatever you do in your scriptures. The gift of the Holy Ghost. And no doubt of the side that the Holy Ghost, gift of the Holy Ghost, was here on earth before Christ came in the meridian of time. Now, just a few other uh, quick matters here. Let's go and do a little vocabulary work. Let's go to verse 30, uh, section 20, and we know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. You might mark or underline or whatever you do. 
uh, justification in verse 30. Well, justification, if you think, if you're familiar with computer word processing, when you are writing a document, you can push certain sequence of keys and have the margins justified. Yeah, the left margin is almost always justified in our documents. Sometimes we want it right justified also. Justified in computer word processing work simply means being lined up perfectly. The margin is perfectly lined up, top to bottom. And so justification in living the gospel is that through the help of the Holy Ghost, we are lined up in perfect harmony with the commandments of God. In other words, we are justified. We're lined up in harmony with the commandments of God. And by the way, that's, of course, a process. We aren't perfectly lined up. We know that, but we're working on it. And so justification, by the way, on Judgment Day, that will come into play because Christ tells us that uh, his grace is sufficient for us after all we do, after all we can do. And so on just on Judgment Day, we will, if we have lived the gospel to the best of our ability and lived the commandments, tried to stay on the covenant path and succeeded, Christ tells us that you've done all you can do. I will do the rest. My atonement will take over now and you will be completely justified. In other words, lined up perfectly in harmony with the commandments of God that are required to enter exaltation. Now let's look at verse 31. So we've just dealt with justification in verse 30. Go to verse 31. It mentions sanctification. Verse 31, and we know also that sanctification, Mark sanctification, through the grace of our Lord. By the way, I like to use the word help to help me understand what grace means. Grace to me means the wonderful and complete help of Jesus Christ. So let's read verse 31. And we know also that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true to all those who love and serve God with all their minds, minds and strength. So let's go back to the top of verse 31. The word sanctification means, and one way of looking at it, it is to be made spotless and holy and fit to be in the presence of God. So sanctification goes along with justification. And we are sanctified because we are justified we then are sanctified and made spotless by the atonement of Christ, and we are made holy, and we are made fit to be in the presence of God forever. Well, our time's pretty much up. Let's uh, go to section 21, and 
just uh, ask a question. Have you noticed that God promises us that the prophet will never lead us astray? This is really crucial for us to understand, have complete faith in, and stick to solidly because we have many sources trying to pull us away from the words of the prophet. They're trying to pull us away from Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. Well, in section 21, we have a strong message that God will never let the prophet lead us astray. Let's, uh, you make notes where you can, and we'll just quickly read. In section 21, we will use verses 1, 4, 5, and 6. Watch how powerful it is. Behold, there shall be a record kept, this is verse 1, kept among you, and in it thou, Joseph Smith, thou, Joseph, shalt be called a seer, a translator, a prophet, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church, through the will of God the Father and the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ. Go over to verse 4 down to verse 4 and then over. Wherefore, meaning the church, thou shalt give heed unto all his words. So, instructions to you and me, for the church. Thou shalt give heed unto all his. This is Joseph Smith. This is President Russell M. Nelson and all the other prophets. Thou shalt give heed unto all his words and commandments which he shall give unto you as he receiveth them, walking in all holiness before me. Verse 5, for his word, the word of the living prophet, the word of Joseph Smith, for his word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth in all patience and faith. That is so clear. You cannot mistake what it's saying. And now watch what the where the fact that the prophet will not lead us astray comes into play. This is verse 6. For by doing these things, the things just mentioned, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Yea, and the Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good and his name's glory. Now pay special attention for the first three lines or so of verse 6. For by doing these things, mentioned in previous verses, following the prophet, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. In other words, you will not be led astray. You can bank on that. Now we'll finish up with section 22. A simple message here. A lot of people who were converted coming into the church after, at this point in church history, and some of them still ask it, some investigators, hey, I was baptized in my previous church, whatever that was, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, Baptist, um, uh, I'd rather not be baptized again. Can you accept my previous baptism? Well, what's the answer in section 22? The answer is no. 
previous baptisms, they do not have authority. They won't work. And so section 22, verse 2. Wherefore, although a man should be baptized an hundred times, it availeth him nothing. For you cannot enter in at the straight gate. Straight, by the way, the way it's spelled there means narrow. You cannot enter in at the narrow gate, the straight gate, by the law of Moses. In other words, by any other religion, neither by your dead works. Verse 4, Wherefore, enter ye in at the gate. Out the side of that you might put baptism by authority. By immersion. Wherefore enter ye in at the gate, as I have commanded, and seek not to counsel your God. Amen. That's pretty final. Well, folks, it's been delightful to be with you. I bear witness that the Doctrine and Covenants is a most wonderful and powerful uh, book of scripture and I pray that we can all be taught by the Holy Ghost and just have deep feelings of joy in our heart as we study it with our come follow me and every other time throughout our lives when we're studying it and I leave my testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.